Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed, but the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up. I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And I'm your co-host, Mike Bussing. In this week's Friday follow-up, we're going to be answering all of your questions, comments, and theories about episode 306, where I interviewed Troy Eldridge. I think that in episode 306, we covered a lot of ground, and we have a lot more insight as to why Troy did what he did. So let's get started and hear what you have to say. All right, Bob, you blew up social media this week when you put out a message asking for people's opinions on the music for the show. So let's start off by talking about that. All right, so all of you know that a couple of months ago we changed our music. Where we used to just have a couple of tracks by our old music guy, now we have Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com writing custom scores for every episode. Our whole production has changed over the last, say, six months. First of all, we hired Mike to do the production and editing. And then, like I said, we hired PutThemInASong.com to do the music and scoring. So our process has changed a lot. So first, let me explain how we make an episode. So I spend four or five days researching, cross-referencing, going through documents, and writing an outline for the show. So then we sit down and record. While I'm speaking into the microphone, Mike's producing, making sure that I don't misspeak, making sure I get everything right, cross-referencing with my notes. And then Mike edits the episode, and it gets sent to Shane. And then Shane listens through it and writes music throughout the background. So it's a three-step process involving a three-person team. Since this was a big change, I wanted to see what everybody thought about the new production. And to be honest, Mike, it was no help at all. Yeah, as it turns out, everybody has different opinions. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I wanted to address it here on the show today to let everyone know because there's so many people with so strong opinions that are so conflicting with each other. So what I put out on social media was, what do you think about the new sound? And I want to read to you just a few of the responses that we got. I have, love the new music and format. The intro was light, which is a nice way to ease into the heaviness of the podcast. Keep it up, guys. Followed by, love the pod, but not the overdramatic intro. It's embarrassing. Followed by, please don't change the intro. Followed by, I don't like the intro at all. And then we have, don't like the sound effects between information. It's very irritating. And that's followed up with, the new sound has definitely leveled up the entire podcast, which is tough to do because the content is already amazing. And that's followed with, annoyed shitless by the sound quality and unbelievably annoying background music. Then we got, the music is good, overall production quality is better than other pods I listen to. Great work. And we follow that up with, Bob, do you think that having a beatbox playing under your narrative makes it easy to understand you? Wrong. And that's followed up with, I love the music, keep doing what you're doing. Followed by, super annoyed with the music. And then after that, 
I really enjoy the music. For me, it's taken Truth and Justice to the next level. We follow that up with, I really like Truth and Justice, but the music playing throughout the last episode was so off-putting. And we follow that up with, love the ambient music throughout the episodes. So, the reason I'm reading all of those to you is so that any of you who have a strong opinion about the show and have let us know, and you're not seeing us make a change based on your input, it's not because we're ignoring you. We put this question out to social media because we honestly want to make sure that we're putting together a show that everyone is enjoying. The issue is that everyone has a different opinion. That was just a handful of responses. We put this out on the Facebook fan page, our Facebook page, and our Twitter feed, and had well over 2,000 responses altogether. And just like this cross-section, everybody has conflicting opinions. So, what do we do? Well, at some point we have to default to what do I want the show to sound like. And then I have to balance that with what do the listeners want. So at the end of the day, after reading through all of this input, there are a few things that I found consistent. One issue that a lot of people have is that the volume levels go up and down. This is a legitimate concern, and it's not just an opinion, it's a fact. See, I listen to the podcast on speakers, so I don't notice it so much. But after seeing a few comments about this, I listened to the last episode on headphones, and I can see what people are saying. The music's loud, and then the interview's quiet. And sometimes we can't avoid that. You know, the interview with Troy, Troy speaks softly, and it wasn't exactly the kind of interview where I could go up to him and tell him he needs to readjust his mic and speak more clearly. I had to just let him go. Well, yeah, and I would like to think that most listeners could understand that since you were in the field. Yeah, it's not like we're sitting in the studio. So there's always going to be a different sound quality when I'm recording here in the studio or even over the phone, as opposed to being out in someone's back bedroom. But in any case, one thing that we are going to work on is trying to keep the volume levels consistent throughout the episode, so that if you're listening on headphones, you don't have to go up and down. And then a second thing that we're going to continue working on is that there's a distinct difference in the show, as you've noticed, between segments. Some segments I'm talking about things that are very factually based, and other times I'm in more of a storytelling mode. And we as a team have decided that during those really factual segments, to tone down the music, bring down the level, and try to make it more subtle. And then lastly, we had a lot of comments about the intro, some like it, some don't. But one thing that was kind of consistent was a lot of people said they thought it was a little too long. So Shane's already taken care of that. He's already shortened up the intro a little bit and taken some of the effects off of my voice on the intro. So that's something that we heard. So those are three things that we're changing right now. We're always open to your input. Just please understand that just because you may like a particular aspect of the show or don't like a particular aspect of the show, there's probably just as many people that have the opposite opinion of that. So we do our best to listen to everything you guys are telling us and try to do what we think is best for the overall production of the show. Okay, I think that pretty much covers the music thing, so let's move on. Okay, Bob, listener Kim asks us, unless I misunderstood, Shauna's statement never came up at trial. I was wondering whether the prosecution had a duty to turn over that statement in discovery as it could have been viewed as helpful evidence, perhaps for possible impeachment of Detective Watts. If defense counsel was aware of it, I find it hard to believe that he wouldn't have figured out a way to bring it up at trial. Also, did Jesse have a public defender or was he able to hire an attorney? So basically she wants to know if the defense was aware of Shauna's statement and if Jesse had a public defender. All right, as far as I know, the defense was aware of Shauna's statement. And the reason I say that is because that statement was written into Detective Watts' official report, which was in the prosecutor's file. And I believe Dallas County had an open file policy with the defense. So the defense, I believe, did have access to that statement. And the answer to the second part of your question is, Jesse did have a public defender. He did not hire a private attorney. Okay, listener Eric writes, do you think that the reason Mama Judy and Jesse James Swindell waited so long to come forward was that they saw Ronnie, 
the guy they were looking for, was part of the guys attacking Kiao. I really have no idea, but I do know that Ronnie was later written off as a possible suspect by Detective Watts. But then again, we also know that Watts pretty much had his sight set on Jesse and wasn't letting go of that. So at this point, we don't really have any way of knowing, but I would think that if they actually witnessed Ronnie attacking Kiao, they wouldn't have come forward at all. If they didn't want the police to know what happened, then why bring it up? David asked, did Detective Don Watts get in trouble for leaking the info to Carol Eldridge? No, he didn't, because I don't think that anybody had any idea that that had happened. And even at this point, we don't have proof that that happened. It's a matter of really digging into these documents and trying to connect the dots and looking at these minute details and trying to figure things like this out. So in my opinion, that's exactly what happened. But I don't think anybody realized that back at trial. I don't think that Jesse's attorney spent an awful lot of time digging into these reports, or we would have seen Shauna Couples on the stand for sure, amongst other things. But the short answer is no. As far as I know, Don Watts did not get in any trouble for feeding that information if he fed that information to Carol Eldridge. Kristen says, unless Troy murdered Kiao, he had to know his DNA wasn't found. Did he think police would frame him? Well, you have to look at the way that Watts framed that argument. So he tells Troy that Jesse and his DNA were on the scene. So I think that what he's trying to do here is to convince Troy that Jesse actually is the one that killed Kiao, and that because they lived together, that maybe his hairs or DNA was on Jesse. So it wasn't as simple as just saying, we found your DNA on the crime scene. I don't think that would have worked to convince anybody to say anything if they didn't have anything to do with the murder. But by saying that Jesse's DNA was found there along with Troy's and they lived together, that argument then becomes much more compelling. Fat's mom asks, I may have missed something, but would it be unusual for Troy to know the keys were returned? He mentioned that he knew that. It is definitely unusual that Troy knew about the keys because that was never made public. At trial, Kenneth Gove testified that that information was never included in any of his flyers. It was never made public in any of the police press releases. No one knew that those keys were returned. But like I mentioned in episode 306, it's fruit of the poisonous tree. We already have some strong indications that Watts was feeding information to at least Carol. And then we see at trial that Troy is now all of a sudden testifying about a knife that Jesse had the night before that just happens to fit what Sheila Spotswood said would have to be the only type of knife that could have possibly made all the wounds. So Troy knowing about the keys when he shouldn't know about them could mean one of two things. Either Troy had inside knowledge of what happened with the crime, or Detective Watts or the prosecutor was giving him information. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, listener Amanda writes, From what I'm understanding, Troy is adamant that Jesse requested Troy to call his mother Carol because he thinks he just quote, killed someone. 
However, I thought Jesse and his mother never had a good relationship. Could this be the way Carol is in the narrative without her looking like she is the puppet master? I think that Carol entering the narrative here could have a couple of different utilities. One, it brings her into the story and gives the prosecution a reason to call her to testify. Or also it could be because Troy, as he testified to, had no idea Watts was coming to visit him when he first met him at the Sonic Drive-In. According to him, Carol didn't even tell him that Watts was coming when she called and told him to go talk to Troy. So it could just be Troy bringing his mother into the story because his mother is writing the story. And also remember that the statement about Jesse telling Troy to call his mom came out in Troy's very first affidavit, where he wasn't with Jesse when the attack occurred. And it could just be a way for Troy to give a narrative where he left right away and isn't responsible for knowing what happened throughout the rest of the day. But at the end of the day, your guess is as good as mine as to why Carol enters the narrative here. Kimberly writes, According to Watts' notes, Watts spoke with Shauna and told Shauna not to tell Jesse or Troy that they had a conversation. Watts' notes indicate that he then received a call from Jesse, asking why he's investigating him and scheduling a meeting, yet both Jesse and Watts state this has never happened. Is it possible that Watts inadvertently wrote Jesse's name in his notes, but in actuality, he received a call from Troy instead? That would definitely be easier to explain than him writing that Jesse called him, but I still don't think it makes a lot of sense. Based on Watts' note from his interview with Shauna, there was nothing there that I saw indicating that he thought Troy killed Kiao. At that point, it was all still about Jesse. So I don't know what that conversation, unless there was more to it than what Watts wrote in his notes, would have prompted Troy to think that he was the one being investigated. Gary writes to us, Devil's Advocate here. Has anyone verified that there was factually no dog? I only ask because detail about the goves and everything else that happened seems to be unbelievably thin that I wouldn't be incredibly surprised if there was one. The dog was a very interesting detail that Troy put into his narrative when he was talking to me a couple of weeks ago. While we don't have any direct evidence saying that there definitely was not a dog with Kiao that morning, we have no statements that she ever went walking by herself in the morning with a dog. There wasn't a leash found with her. Kenneth never said anything about the dog being left outside. There was nothing like that at trial, so there's, there's nothing at all to indicate that she was walking her dog. However, I do think the dog was an important element to the story. Remember, in my opinion, Troy did not witness anything. He did not see this murder happen. Jesse didn't attack Kiao. The whole story was completely made up. So when he's trying to recount the story to me now, 26 years later, he's trying to insert details into his narrative. My personal opinion, and this really is just a guess, is that in the afternoons when Kiao and Kenneth went for walks together, which were much more leisurely walks than her exercise she did in the mornings, that maybe they walked their dogs together then in the afternoon. And it's on those afternoon walks where both Troy and Jesse say that they would sit on their balcony and they had seen them walking by before. So my guess is that Troy actually has seen Kiao and Kenneth walking a dog, and that's what he was remembering when he retold the story. Based on what Jesse's told me, Troy was not an early riser and definitely would never have been up at 7 o'clock in the morning when Kiao took her morning walks. Listener Julie writes, You mentioned that on the day of Kiao's murder, Mr. Gove had an employee not show up to work, and that the employee had a history with drugs. Do you know anything about that employee, like maybe what kind of relationship he had with Mr. Gove? No, unfortunately, this particular employee was never mentioned by name, nor were any of Kenneth's supervisors, so we don't know anything about this employee with a drug problem. We did have a few listeners that wrote in and found it odd that Kenneth thought that it was this employee with a drug problem that prompted the call from the police, and then he called home to see what was going on. 
And at first that struck me as odd too, but the more I thought about it, put yourself in Kenneth Goh's position. Your boss tells you the police just called and said they want to talk to you. They're coming down to talk to you. So you start racing through your mind. What could they possibly want? So maybe the first thing that comes to his mind is, I wonder if this has something to do with the employee that didn't show up today. But it's not unreasonable at all to think that as he sat there and still waited for the police to show up, it crossed his mind that maybe something's wrong at home, so he called the house to see what was going on too. I think you just have to imagine yourself sitting there waiting for the police to arrive when you know they're coming to talk to you because something has happened. I think it's perfectly normal to run a whole bunch of scenarios through your mind trying to figure out what they want. All right, and one last thought here from listener Ed. While your comments about emotion-fixing memory make sense, and as an old psych major I believe are supported, I was wondering how you would explain a seeming contradiction. I believe it is also well established that in investigation practice, that eyewitness testimony is notoriously unreliable. I think you may have even referred to this at some point in one of your episodes. So when Troy's story is put to both of these tests, you get different answers as to the truth of his testimony. An eyewitness, by definition, is likely to be in a highly emotionally charged situation. So either he should remember everything or the opposite is true and his memory is unreliable. Where then does Troy's inconsistent stories really get us regarding the truth? I know you can help me understand. Thanks. Okay, so what Ed is saying here is that we have two conflicting viewpoints about memory during an emotional experience. One being that emotional memories are the strongest. And then secondly, police oftentimes say, and Jim Clemente said a couple of weeks ago on our show, that eyewitness testimony is notoriously unreliable. And so what Ed's asking is, how can both of these be true? And the answer is that there's a subtle difference here between typical eyewitness testimony and someone that experienced a traumatic event. So when we say that eyewitness testimony is unreliable, oftentimes we're talking about someone who just happened to see something happen, possibly from a distance. They weren't actively involved in it. Maybe they looked from across the street and saw someone getting robbed or something of that nature. Later, when asking that witness to recall details like a person's facial features or height or things like that, little details, oftentimes you can ask five different people what they saw and you'll get five different answers. The difference here with Troy is that Troy was actively a part of this. It was happening right in front of him. According to him, he was screaming at Jesse while it was happening. Jesse was screaming at him. Kiao was screaming. And he was so scared that he ran away. Now, while I agree with you, Ed, that it does kind of seem like we're splitting hairs here, there is a significant difference. In Troy's case, we're talking about what's known as a traumatic memory. And actually, on our Facebook page, listener Debbie Shutterbug posted an article to a research study that answers a lot of these questions. If you want to read the article, just Google a longitudinal investigation of the reliability of memories for trauma and other emotional experiences. But the shortened version of this is, the article supports exactly what I was saying on the show this week. But digging deeper into these traumatic memories, there's also another phenomenon when someone who is experiencing a traumatic event will basically black out the memory completely. Meaning they'll have no memory of the event whatsoever. They know no details. They know nothing. You'll see this happening when someone happens to be like the victim of a crime like this. For example, if Kiao had lived through this attack, she may not have good memory of what exactly happened to her. She may not even be able to describe her attacker's face. And I did have a listener or two write in about that as well, that maybe that's what happened with Troy. But there's a major, major difference here. In those events, the victims can't remember anything. Basically, as a reaction to the trauma, your brain has a tendency to protect itself. It's almost like if you're living your life with your brain recording everything that's happening around you, 
And when something traumatic is happening, it's like your brain presses pause and records nothing. But that's not in any way what happened with Troy. If that was the case, his story would be that I don't remember what happened. I just blacked out. I don't know. I can't remember anything. In his case, Troy is saying that he does remember things, and he's giving us details, but they're the wrong details. So if Troy had wrote in his affidavits and testified in court and told me, I just don't remember what happened, it all happened so fast, I don't remember anything, that might be reasonable. But telling me that he specifically remembers Kiel walking around, wearing a house coat, and walking a dog, these are clear indicators that Troy is making up a story. He is not recalling an event that he himself experienced. And if you go all the way back to episode 102 in the old Serial Dynasty days, I talked a lot about memory in that episode. When someone's lying, they have a tendency to want to fill in the gaps and create more details. We mistakenly think that more details makes for a more believable story. But in fact, what it does is it makes it almost impossible to remember your lies. Okay, that's going to do it for social media for this week. Thanks, everybody, for your thoughts and theories. Now let's take a quick break. We'll hear from our sponsor, and we'll get right into the voicemails. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, now let's get right into the voicemails. Our first voicemail comes from one of the show's transcriptionists, Desiree Dunn. Hi, Bob. Hi, Mike. This is Des Dunn in Lubbock, Texas. Call him to say hey. Just a couple of things I have thought of that want your opinion on. First is, it seems to me more likely that it was a single attacker for the reason that I believe two men would have been able to have controlled Kiao. And since the crime happened over a distance, it seems to me like one person couldn't control her and she got away, especially since she had the knife. Secondly, the keys, I think, may be a bit of a white rabbit because... After this was front page headlines, everybody who knew her as Jit knew her given name was Kiao, and so it wouldn't be a huge leap to be able to return the keys back to the mailbox. Anyway, just a thought. Thanks for everything you do, guys. Bye. All right, before I answer that, Des left a second voicemail as well. Oh, hey, Bob and Mike. This is Des again. Just one more thing. Please don't make me transcribe my own voice. Thanks, guys. Bye. Sorry, Des, you're going to have to transcribe your own voice because those were good questions. First, let's address your question about there possibly being one attacker rather than two. I still think that either could be true. The knife wounds themselves are what really indicate to me that there was two different knives being used to stab Kiao. 
And like I mentioned on a previous episode, it probably is possible to make those larger stab wounds with a smaller knife, but I find it really unlikely that the majority of the wounds that are over an inch wide all came from one three-quarter inch wide knife. But as far as controlling Kiao, we have to remember that Kiao had a large butcher knife in her hand, and I have to believe that her attacker or attackers did not expect that. So again, I'll ask you to put yourself in the mind of the offender or offenders. Whatever the motive was for this, which as I've said before, at this point, I think most likely was a sexual assault. If the plan was to grab Kiao and say, put her into a car and take her somewhere, a couple of guys or three guys or even one guy probably thought this would be a pretty easy task. I'm going to pull my knife out and grab her and she's going to do what I say. So if that's the scenario, and we don't know if it is, but if that is the scenario and Kiao pulls out a nine inch long butcher knife, things are going to change really quickly. So even if there were two offenders involved, and Keo starts swinging around with a knife and running, I definitely think it would still be difficult for even two people to control her. And then once they got her on the ground, she still has that knife in their hand. So if there's two offenders, most likely one of them's trying to hold her arm down to keep the knife from stabbing them. She's kicking and flailing and screaming. Remember, she's in really good shape. She exercises every day. She's small, but she's strong. So if we're talking about two professional hitmen, then I would say you're right. It's unlikely that even one of them wouldn't have been able to control her. But if we're talking about two, say, teenagers that had no idea she was going to pull a knife or fight back like that, it would be a whole different story. And regarding the keys, you're absolutely right. And actually, off the air, Jim Clemente mentioned the same thing. He asked me if Kiao's name was ever put out in the newspaper, and it was. So that does tell us how someone could have looked at the keychain seen that there was a K on the ring, and known that Kiao's first name was Kiao. But it still doesn't explain how Kenneth and Kirby could check the mailbox every single day and never see the keys in there. But thanks for the voicemails, Des. Those were great questions. All right, our next voicemail is from Melissa. Hi, Bob. My name's Melissa, and I'm calling from Boston. Um, I'm a little bit behind, just like an episode. I, I was just listening to the episode 305 follow-up, um, and I had a quick question about a theory that someone had given about a, a woman attacker, a question someone had asked about a woman attacker. And I was wondering um, what you thought about whether if it was a female who attacked, maybe, I mean, maybe the motive wasn't murder, but maybe it was still, you know, I just want to scare her. Maybe it was some kind of still, you know, Asian invasion. And a woman had seen her walking and, and went out with a knife and just said, oh, I'm going to kind of freak her out. Um, and then when Keo had a knife, you know, the woman freaked out and ended up killing her, and she was panicking, and that's why um, it seemed so brutal. And maybe uh, it being a woman um, might also explain something about why it seemed like Kiao was so able to kind of get a, start to get away. Just a thought I had. Uh, I love the show. Thank you so much for everything you do, and have a good rest of your day. Okay, thanks, Melissa. So yeah, I see your point that it could have been other motives. It could have been this, quote, Asian invasion or another woman trying to scare Kiao. But honestly, I just don't think it's likely. But keep in mind that we are nowhere close to a point in this investigation where we're ready to rule anything out. So everything still has to stay on the table at this point. So it's possible, but I just don't see any indications of that in this crime scene. Again, think about the time of day. I think that it's very likely that this was premeditated. Not the murder, but the attack. And there's just nothing in Kiao's victimology to suggest any of that. 
I've actually made contact with one of Kiao's very close friends and have talked to her a lot about Kiao's victimology. And there's just nothing there that indicates that anyone had a problem with her, that anyone had any issues with uh, Asian living in the neighborhood. She described Kiao as extremely friendly and got along with everyone and having a great relationship with her husband and her son. Now, this is just one person's opinion, so we can't exactly take that to the bank. But I guess my response to your question would be, like I said, we can't rule anything out, but I just really think that's a stretch at this point. Okay, and this next voicemail comes from Maureen. Hi, my name is Maureen. I live in Thousand Oaks, California. And my question is, why has nobody brought up the fact that this could be completely racially motivated? I've thought this many times listening to you guys. Uh, you're doing a good job, and looking forward to hearing you again. Bye. Okay, thanks, Maureen. That's kind of along the lines of our last voicemail. But one thing with a crime that's racially motivated is we typically will see an escalation, meaning it's not real common for someone who has a problem with someone's race to jump straight to murder, or even just an attack with a knife. Typically, what you'll see first is scare tactics. Notes left on the house, notes left on the car, broken windshields or taillights, things like that. Usually we'll see an escalation of behavior leading up to something like this if it's racially motivated. And so far we have no indication that that's happened. It's not like Kiao just moved into the neighborhood. It's not like there was an Asian invasion where there were a bunch of Asians all of a sudden moving into the neighborhood. She had been living in that house, in that neighborhood, walking around that school for 16 years. So again, while it could be possible, I think that the idea that this was a racially motivated attack is probably unlikely. But that's just my opinion, and again, we can't rule anything out yet at this point. This next one comes from Jennifer in New York. Hi, Bob and Mike. This is Jennifer from New York, a.k.a. Fast Fingers Jennifer. Uh, I had a question for you in regards to Troy's neck. I was wondering if you knew which level or levels he was fused at and whether or not he was fused anteriorly or posteriorly because he may not be as immobile as you might think. I was just wondering if maybe you could speak to that and I could investigate further um, what his range of motion and his movement mobility would be. Let me know. Bye. Okay, thanks, Jennifer. And we don't know exactly how this surgery happened or which vertebrae were fused front or back. But what I do have are several statements from people that knew Troy back then and my own eyewitness account of meeting Troy a few weeks ago. And everyone seems to say that Troy did not have the ability to turn his head at all. And that was definitely what I experienced with him when I met him in Texas. When Troy needs to turn his head, he has to turn his entire body. And that's the same thing that was described to me from way back in the 90s from people who knew him then. All right, and our last voicemail is from Kathy. Hi, Bob and Mike. This is Kathy from Texas. Um, I sent you an email about one of the things that it was more of a statement. I noticed that Troy never mentioned Kiel's knife at all in his statements. And I don't know why that the defense didn't bring that up. Um, the other thing is I would like to know if Troy and Carol can be charged with perjury for their lies that they told on the stand. Keep up what you're doing. You're doing a great job. Thanks. Bye-bye. That is definitely one of the most frustrating parts of the trial transcripts, is that I don't feel that Troy Elder was really cross-examined at all. Jesse's defense attorneys waited till the end of the trial to cross-examine Troy, which isn't uncommon. 
But when they cross-examined him, they basically were trying to frame Troy as being the actual offender. They were trying to present him as an alternate suspect, rather than attacking and impeaching his actual statements. Never once was he asked what color clothing was Kia wearing, was she carrying a knife, none of that. And as far as perjury is concerned, based on the research that I've done, the statute of limitations for Troy or Carol to be charged with perjury has long since expired, which means there would be no legal consequences if they turned around and told the truth now. All right, well, that concludes this week's Friday follow-up. Thank you, everybody, for your thoughts and theories. And I also, again, want to thank everybody for all of your input. This really is a team effort, and not just with our production team, but with all of you as well. So I do want to thank everyone for all of the constructive criticism. I know I asked for it, and some of it was a little tough to read, but it's helping us to continue to get better and better. And make sure that you tune in this Sunday, just two days from now, to finally get the full story of what happened at Jesse's trial and what led to his ultimate conviction and life sentence. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Mike Bussing is our executive producer. Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for this episode was created by PutThemInASong.com. And don't forget that if you have that special someone or a special event coming up, that you can go to PutThemInASong.com, where Shane and his team of Nashville musicians will create and compose a custom song just for you or your loved one. I want to thank Amanda Meyer for creating the logo for the Friday follow-ups. And thank you to our transcription team, Desiree Dunn, Sarah Hoyt, and Sarah Mueller. Also, a big thank you to Chris Brinkley of sylviaconsultants.com for creating and maintaining our website. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can send new cases into cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Like the Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at truthjusticepod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. could have been viewed as help uh, perhaps for possible impeachment of detective perhaps perhaps for possible impeachment of and the answer to the second part of your question is in the answer to your in the answer to your uh, (laughs) just sitting there mad because you got to edit this (laughs) (laughs) this person's name cracks me up but it's all they gave me fats mom asks oh shit hang on hit pause only devil's er, devil's advocate devil's advocate here. Scratch that. Okay, so what Ed is saying here that is okay, so the what Ed Okay, so what Ed is saying here is that we have is that we have two conflicting viewpoints about memory during an emotional experience. Mic check, mic check. <clears throat>
Okay, that's going to do it for social media for this week. Thanks, everybody, for your thoughts and theories. Now let's take a quick break. We'll hear from our sponsor, and we'll get right into the voicemails. That's some of the best work you've done on that transition in six months. Well, progress, Bob. That's what it's all about. Solid. Thank you.